Mark chapter one, page 699 is where we're gonna be. And I wanna start by giving you a question. I know some of you are, are note takers. I'm, I'm not much of a note taker, but for those of you that like to kind of get your mind and your heart around where we're gonna go, I wanna give you one question to wrestle with as we get into the story this morning. And here's the question. What part of your life still needs the cleansing touch of Jesus? What part of your life still needs the cleansing touch of Jesus? I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Uh, what, what, what are the parts of your story? What are the parts of your physical story? What are the parts of your spiritual story that still need the cleansing touch of Jesus Christ? So one of my favorite TV shows is Sports Center. I don't know if any of you love Sports Center, but I love Sports Center. I'm a huge sports fan. And so I love watching it because it's literally just 60 minutes of highlights from the the best plays, the best moments from the best games of the day before. And so it's kind of this kind of like ultimate sports experience. If you've never watched Sports Center, you, you get to catch up on all the best moments of the day before without the commercials, without the unnecessary commentary, without the TV timeouts and the things that make the games go so long. And so I've kind of grown up just like loving Sports Center because in a small amount of time, I can get a really big picture of what happened the day before. And what I love about Sports Center is the same thing that I love about the Gospel of Mark because Mark's gospel in so many ways is the Sports Center of the New Testament. It is the, the highlight reel of Jesus' life. And Mark's goal is not to give you every moment or every story or every teaching of Jesus' life. Mark wants to give us a picture of Jesus that is so big and so bold and so non-ignorable that your only option when you see Jesus for who he is is to worship him. Jesus wants to, to, Mark wants to give us a picture of Jesus that is strong enough to move us beyond Bible Belt Christianity, that is strong enough to move us beyond songs and sermons and sitting and listening, but to move us into a place of robust experience with the King of glory so that you can know God for who he is through the person of Jesus. And so Mark is sort of like sports center, just action-packed, like highlight reel moment after moment after moment. And here's the challenge with both sports center and the gospel of Mark at times is when you see things from highlight reel to highlight reel, there's this tendency sometimes to miss the beauty in some of the smaller moments. And it's not because they're less beautiful or less bold, it's just because they're laying against the backdrop of something that seemingly is bigger and more beautiful and more bold. And the story that we're going to wrestle with for a few moments this morning out of Mark chapter 1 is quite honestly a story that for years I've just kind of skipped over. It's not because it's not important or good or powerful, it's just because it was laid against the backdrop of things that seem to be more important, more powerful, and more beautiful. And Mark is going to invite us into this space this morning where it's almost as if he's saying, is your imagination big enough to find yourself in this story between this one man and Jesus? Is your imagination big enough to get beyond the white plastic chairs in the room that we're sitting in? Is your imagination big enough for God to draw you all the way in so he can send you all the way out? And there's these five little verses that have just been blowing my heart up all week. And so Mark chapter one, flip open with me in your Bibles, page 699. We're gonna start in verse 40. And if you don't have a Bible, I just invite you to close your eyes and I'll, I'll read these words over us. And my prayer is that God would slow down our hearts and our imaginations enough so that the word of God could just wash over you and you could find yourself wherever it is that God wants you to find yourself this morning. Here it is, verse 40. It says, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and he begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
And Jesus was indignant. Or some of your Bibles say filled with compassion. We'll come back and talk about that kind of weird moment here, here in a second. But Jesus reached out and he touched the man. And he said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the lepr- leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See to it that you don't tell anyone what I've just done, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to the priest. But instead, the man went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news about Jesus. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. Yet the people still came to Jesus from everywhere. This is the word of God out of Mark chapter 1. Now, I want you to notice this. This is really important. And maybe you'll start noticing this as you read the Bible on uh, kind of your own schedule and your own time when you're not here with us at Ethos. But so often when you read the scriptures, it will hit you in one of two ways. So often the word of God comes at you and it sort of functions in your heart and in your life like a mirror. So if you think about the way that a mirror works for just a moment, a mirror's only job is to reflect what is standing before it. And so when you stand in front of a mirror, you see both the wrinkles and the smiles. You see the things that you like about your face and the things that you don't. A mirror's job is just to reflect back what is actually there. There are times when we read the scriptures where you read the story of what God is doing through human history and you see a story like the Israelites and it functions sort of like a mirror. At first you're reading a story about them and what God is doing through them and maybe you've noticed this, the Holy Spirit will start to turn the story on you and instead of you reading the Bible, the Bible begins reading you. And you begin to realize this is not just their story, this is our story and there are moments When you read the Bible and it feels like a mirror, it just starts reflecting both the complexity and the condition of the human story. But there are other times when you read the Bible and it doesn't function like a mirror, it functions more like a window. And you begin to see this picture, you begin to see into a world that you've never stepped into, you begin to see things about God that you never noticed, you begin to see things about life in the kingdom of God that you never dreamt of, and there are these moments when you read the Bible, and it's like looking through a big, beautiful window overlooking the Rocky Mountains, and it's as if the word is saying, will you come in and play in the wonderful world of God? There are times the Bible is like a mirror, there are times the Bible is like a window, and then there are moments, like Mark chapter 1, where it's both. And it's as if Mark is saying, is your imagination big enough to both see the condition and the complexity of the human story while at the same time peering in through the window to God's heart and seeing Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, in the midst of it. And so I want you to pay attention to the story this moment, this morning as we look at each of these little moments that make the story what it is. Pay attention to the places where God is awakening your heart because maybe it's there that God has something to say with you. So let's, let's go back. I want to just go through the story slowly. Let's let these five verses wash over us and then at the end we'll try to tie it back together. Cool? That's what we're going to do. So hope it's cool. We're going to start back in verse 40 and I want to start with this picture of this man that you see here. In verse 40 it says, A man with leprosy came to Jesus and he fell down on his knees begging Jesus, If you're willing, you can make me clean. I don't know if there's any way in a short amount of time if we can get our minds around what it must have been like to have been this man. In a world where there was not the medical care and the technology and the medical advancements that we have, to be a person with leprosy was uh, really kind of a death sentence. Leprosy was this incurable skin disease, highly contagious 
It was life-altering. It was physically disfiguring. It was socially disfiguring. It was spiritually disfiguring. And to be kind of condemned with the, the curse or the sickness of leprosy was to change every aspect of your life. The only way that I can kind of maybe help us imagine it for a moment is what happened in the U.S. a few months ago when the Ebola scare started to kind of break out throughout the U.S., And that disease didn't just affect the person that had Ebola, it affected those that were around them, and it quarantined those, and there's this fear, do you remember this? So this is kind of what um, leprosy was like during the days of Jesus. And so this disease would disfigure a person physically. And so it would start on your skin, and boils, and sores would break out, and if you had a really bad case of leprosy, uh, eventually body parts would literally start to rot off, and you would lose fingers and toes and then hands and arms. And it's hard to imagine your body literally eating itself. Uh, for those of you that are in zombie movies and zombie TV shows, it's really the closest picture that you can get of someone who had been walking with leprosy for quite some time. Your body would be hunched over. You couldn't walk very well. Your skin would be falling off. And it was a disease that was unlike heart disease or it was unlike cancer. It was unlike diseases that you can conceal within you. Wherever you went, people knew that you had leprosy. Your closest friends and even Even strangers that you never met knew what it is that you're carrying around. And the disease would disfigure who you were physically. The disease would also disfigure who you were socially. So during the days of Jesus, if you had leprosy, as soon as you were diagnosed with it, you were forced to move outside of the city. Can you imagine being diagnosed with cancer and the first thing that you have to do is you have to leave your family? You have to leave your friends. You're no longer allowed to live where everybody else lives because you're that contagious. You're considered to be that disgusting. And so you'd have to move outside of the city You couldn't hang out with your friends. You couldn't touch or hug or shake hands. You couldn't kiss that person that you loved. A person with leprosy, when they would walk through public settings, they had to stay, by law, 50 paces away from any other human beings. And if another human being was to get within that 50-paced circumference around their body, you'd have to yell out, stay away from me. I'm unclean. I have leprosy. Can you imagine the social stigma that this would really begin to just ingrain in your heart everywhere you went, you knew that you were the person that everybody else needed to avoid. And this is the man that came to Jesus. Physically disfigured, socially disfigured, spiritually disfigured. So during the days of Jesus, a person with leprosy wasn't even allowed in the temple. You weren't allowed to come worship where other people worshiped. You weren't allowed to offer sacrifices to God. Sacrifices to God were the ways in which you received forgiveness from God before the cross. And so this disease didn't just disfigure you physically and socially, it also disfigured you spiritually. And so to be a person with leprosy meant that in your mind, not only had this disease ruined your current life, it ruined your hopes for eternal life. And this is the man that finds himself in the presence of Jesus. Desperate, humble, broken, hopeless. The story starts in verse 40, a man with leprosy. Runs and he throws himself down into the presence of Jesus and he makes this huge statement. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but you should underline the one statement that this man makes because I think it's one of the most loaded and powerful statements in all of the scriptures. He says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I love this because in this one statement, you and I begin to see the complexity of this man. You know, there's this tendency when we read the, when we read the Bible, we make it so one-dimensional, so black and white, so cut and dry, but this was a real man with a real family, with real pain, with a real story. And what you begin to see as he approaches Jesus is you begin to realize that his life is not very black and white. It feels a lot more gray. 
And that even in his approach of Jesus, you see a man who is both humble and desperate, who is both faith-filled and doubt-filled, and those things are not mutually exclusive. I think so often, especially in church settings, we have this tendency to go, man, you're either a person who's full of faith or a person that's full of doubt. And what you realize in real life is that faith and doubt are so intertwined, it's more like spaghetti. And so often, I have very rarely been able to discern where my faith starts and my doubt ends. Because it's all wrapped up. And you get this picture. I want you to notice what the man says to Jesus. He has this moment of faith. He says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That's a, a statement of faith. Like He says, Jesus, you have the capability to change my situation. It's a moment of faith. But within that same statement is a statement of doubt. He says, if you're willing. He had faith in Jesus' capability, but he was full of doubt when it came to Jesus' character. He knew that Jesus was able, but he wasn't sure that Jesus was good. Have you ever had one of these moments before where you believed God was powerful, you just weren't, you just weren't sure whether or not he's present? You believed that he answered prayer, you just didn't know if he answered your prayer. You believe that he could heal you and heal other people, but you're just not sure he's good enough to do it. And there's this moment where this man's life has been so wrecked by his circumstances. His faith in God's ability is intact, but his faith in God's character is shaky. And yet he breaks all the social norms, he breaks all the social cues, and it says he comes and he throws himself into the, the presence of Jesus. He breaks all the rules there. The 50-foot rule, Jesus, only you. Jesus, only you. And I love what he asks. He doesn't ask Jesus to heal him, he asks Jesus to cleanse him. There's a really big difference here. Uh, he doesn't just ask Jesus to take the disease away. He uses this word that was a loaded word in their spiritual kind of vocabulary of the day. In other words, what this man's saying to Jesus, he says, my life, because of this disease and my sin and all the other stuff, my life has been separated from both God and other people. And Jesus, you alone can put me in good standing with both God and man. And it was the cry of this man's heart. And Mark gives us a glimpse of the word here, and it feels like a mirror. And it's as if he's asking, is your imagination big enough to find yourself with your face in the dirt, just like this man with leprosy? But the story doesn't end there. It keeps going. And Jesus' response is really interesting. I want you to notice this. There are very few moments in the Gospel of Mark where we're told what Jesus feels. We're often told what Jesus does, and we're sometimes told what Jesus says, but we're very rarely told what Jesus feels. And your antenna should go up whenever Mark tells us what Jesus is feeling. And it says that Jesus is standing there before this man. Look at verse 41 with me. And it says, Jesus was indignant. Or some of your Bibles say Jesus was filled with compassion. I'm curious. Raise your hand if your Bibles say Jesus was indignant. Raise them high. I'm just curious. Um, raise your hands high if it says that, that Jesus was filled with compassion. There's a really interesting thing that's happening here in the story. And this bothered me all week. I thought, what is it? Is Jesus angry or is he compassionate? And you get into the original language and you begin to look at it and you realize that what's happening here is way too complex to be captured with one word. And kind of in my humble opinion as I've studied and looked at it, I think the better word or maybe the more powerful translation here is the word indignant. It literally means to be filled with angry grief. Now, this is important for a moment because it's not just enough for us to realize what Jesus feels. We've got to understand what the object of that angry grief is directed towards. 
And so Jesus is not indignant that this sick man has thrown himself into his presence. That's not what Jesus is indignant about. I believe what Jesus is indignant about, the, the thing that has led him to angry grief, is he sees the toll of creation. He sees the brokenness of a world that has been so infiltrated by sin that it has distorted and ruined this man's life. You get this powerful moment, maybe one of the most powerful moments in the Gospels, where Jesus, the creator of all things, is standing face to face with his disfigured creation, a man that Jesus loved and spoke into existence. And this man is now laying with his face in the dirt, covered in sores, excommunicated from the people, distanced from God, dying physically. And it says that when Jesus looks at the way his creation has been disfigured, he's filled with angry grief. I go, can you imagine following a God that was not frustrated by the brokenness of our world. And you get these glimpses when Jesus comes face to face with the pain of people. And he sees the pain of this leper and he says he's just so angry about what has happened. It reminded me of this story. There was a Jewish, scient a Jewish scientist named Fritz Haber. Uh, he lived during World War II. He won the Nobel Prize right before World War II. He created this amazing invention. It was a chemical compound, and it was designed to preserve grain. So um, for hungry people, and they're trying to ship grain to them, and the, the grain wouldn't last. Grain wouldn't grow in certain parts of the world, and so he came up with this compound that would help grain be a little more durable so they could take care of hungry Jewish people during his day. It was during World War II, though, Nazi Germany got, got a hold of the chemical, that he had used, and they turned it into the gas that they would use in the gas chambers of the concentration camps. And here in this moment, this Jewish scientist that had won a Nobel Prize for creating a chemical that would spare people's lives, that creation had been disfigured and was used to kill more than 1.2 million of his own people. And if you want to talk about pain and regret, read some of the stuff that he wrote in response to his his creation being disfigured. And I go, this is the moment. I think we forget about this. Jesus was there in Genesis 1. Jesus spoke everything into existence. He had created this man. And he knew that within the heart of every human being was this design. They were created to be the image bearers of God. And when sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, every bit of brokenness and every bit of pain, both physically, spiritually, and socially, that entered the human story began to disfigure the human race. And Jesus stands there and he's like, this is not the way it was meant to be. And he says that when he sees the brokenness, he's indignant or he's filled with compassion. He's angry about what has happened in the world. And what happens next is beautiful. It says he reaches down and he touches them. I don't think we have any way to, to really wrestle with how powerful this would have been. I wonder how many months or years or decades it had been since this man had been touched by anybody. I think sometimes we forget just the power of a human touch. And I wonder how long Jesus' hand rested on that man's shoulder before he said a word. It's as if Jesus is just saying, brother, I see your pain and I love you enough to meet you in it. Think about a man that was a part of our church family when we first started Ethos. We were about six or eight months in uh, to our church, and uh, he came forward one Sunday night for prayer, and he shared with us that he had been diagnosed HIV positive, and that he had about two months left to live. Some of you maybe remember this man, you remember his story, and I remember sitting there in this room, just my eyes filled with tears as he's sharing this story, 
of what was happening in his life. And I said, hey, can we share this with the church so we can come around you, so we can pray for you, so we can serve you? And he said, no, I don't want to tell anybody. He said, because the day that I was diagnosed with HIV, you know, several years ago, he said, all of my friends and my family began to treat me like a leper. He said, nobody wanted to be around me. Nobody wanted to touch me. They're also scared that they're going to get what I got. And he said, but when I started coming to Ethos, he said, I felt human because you all would touch me. You'd hug me. You'd hold my hands when we'd pray. We'd take communion together. He said, you saw me for a human being like you saw me as I was. And I remember just kind of like encouraging him. I'm like, listen, we're still going to see you as human. Can you share your story? i never forget being in this room. We used to meet over in that corner. He, he stood up and he shared his story. And he got to the part where he said, I didn't want to tell you this because I was scared no one here would touch me. And this young college girl sitting on the first or second row, she gets up and she just runs and she just gives this dude a bear hug. And it was like one of the coolest gospel moments I've ever had, just to, to see the power of touch and to see one person after another stand up and just begin hugging this man. To be there when he died in his apartment that was paid for by folks from Ethos as they gathered around him with hands on him singing the scriptures over him. I went, man, the power of touch. And there's this moment before Jesus says anything, he says a lot by just putting his hand on him. And he says he touches him. And what happens? Look back at the story. It says immediately. It says immediately the, the leprosy leaves this man's body. Immediately the, the disease leaves. And Jesus then gives him some really clear instructions. They're weird instructions, but they're very clear instructions. Look back at verse 43. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. In the original language, it's almost as if Jesus is yelling. He says, listen, the grace of God has just touched your life. Now here's what I want you to do. Don't tell anyone. Doesn't that sound like the opposite? He's like, don't tell anybody. God's just done something. Don't tell anyone. But instead, go show yourself to the priest. Offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And so there's this place where Jesus is inviting this guy, saying, listen, I've got a plan. I want to use what God has just done in your life to change the way the religious world is working. He says, but you've got to trust me long enough to, to keep your mouth closed, because if you start telling everybody, I'm not going to get to do what I'm trying to do. And Jesus gives them very clear instructions, and maybe the most shocking point of the story, jump down to verse 45, but instead, but instead, you know, the grace of God comes into his life, but instead, he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news, and as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town or open openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, and yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And so the story ends with this really odd twist where this man who had been excommunicated physically, socially, and spiritually, this man is drawn back into the community, and Jesus is pushed out of it. And it's as if Mark is inviting us, do you have an imagination big enough to find yourself in the story of what God is doing? And so I want us to wrestle with this story from two angles. First, kind of from the angle of a mirror, and then from the angle of a window. And I go, what, what does this story begin to reveal to you and I about our human condition and our human complexity? What, is it, what does it begin to reflect? So I want you to imagine for a moment, what does this story begin to reflect? What does it begin to reveal to us about the human condition? Because Mark is not just giving us this story of the leper to go, man, look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus did for him. He's saying, hey, do you believe that Jesus is still trying to do this among you? Can you relate to this man with leprosy? So you have this man in the story whose social and physical and spiritual life had been disfigured by this incurable disease 
And it's as if Mark is saying, can you imagine yourself in his same shoes? The story of the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1, and you get three chapters in, and you realize that by Genesis chapter 3, this incurable, life-shaping, heart-stretching, social, physical, and spiritually disfiguring disease began to wash over every human heart, and that disease was the disease of sin. There's this choice that Adam and Eve made, and it didn't feel like a malicious or a wicked choice. There's a moment in a garden where they thought that they knew better than God, and it's not that they were trying to be rebellious and angry. They were just being independent. And you and I have been taught to be independent, right? They thought, we can do this without God, and there's this moment where they chose independence, over-dependence upon God, and the result was sin entered the world, and all of a sudden this disease, this incurable, deeply penetrable disease of sin begins to radically alter and shape the image of God within every human being. I want you to think about this for a moment. Have you ever thought about the ways that sin entering the world has changed us physically? So every disease, you know, the Bible tells us that every single disease, whether a big disease or a minor disease, is the result of sin entering the world. Changes us physically. Every funeral you've ever been at is evidence of the depths of the, the disease of sin that has washed over the human heart. Every bit of physical and emotional and sexual abuse is a result of this disease of sin washing over the human heart. Every bit of violence, every bit of pain. And it's as if Mark is saying, hey, can you find yourself in this story? Where have you been physically disfigured by the results of sin, either by your own choices or those around you? But it disfigures us socially as well. Have you ever noticed the way that sin has crept in and has ruined us socially? Every single divorce, every single bit of gossip, Every broken friendship, every social system and class system that works hard to oppress those that are not like us and to keep them down is a result of this disease of sin washing over the human heart. But it doesn't just affect us physically and socially, it affects us spiritually. So this man, his, his life was changed. Leprosy changed his life and the way that he viewed God. He felt distance from God. He didn't think that God was good anymore because of his pain. And have you ever noticed? I mean, this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. Sin entered the world, and it didn't just make Adam and Eve distance from God. It changed the way that they viewed him. So instead of seeing him as this kind and loving and generous father, they viewed him as this angry, vindictive deity. And this is what you see as this man's face is in the dirt. He comes before Jesus. I know you're able. I don't know if you're good. And have you ever noticed the way that sin disfigures your heart towards God? And it's as if Mark is saying, look at what this disease has done to the human condition. And there is no one in this room, there is no one on our planet that has not been touched by the depths of this disease. But it's not just a, a mirror that reflects our condition. It's a mirror that reflects our complexity. You know, one of the questions that I wrestled with all week is I kept asking myself the question, is this man with leprosy, is he a good man or is he a bad man? Because there are moments in the story where he looks like a good man. You know, he comes to God humbly and gently and, and he throws himself into the presence of Jesus with faith. And I go, that seems like a good thing. And then there are moments where this man rebels against God. Jesus says, hey, here's what I want you to do. And he disobeys. There are moments where he's full to, filled with doubt. There are moments where he doesn't seem to really believe even what he's saying. And I go, is this man a good man or a bad man? And the thing that I kept coming back to this week is he's just a man. 
He's a complex man. And his life is not very black or white. It is pretty gray. And when you see the depths of our grayness, we are reminded of our need for the Lord even more and more and more. I was thinking about that this week as I kept reading this story. It was like a mirror to me. I went, man, this is my story. You know, last Friday, Friday's my day off, and so I was at home. Sydney was taking a nap. My three boys were all supposed to be taking naps, and so it's this rare moment in the Clayton house where it's actually quiet, and so I get out my Bible because I'm such a good Christian, and I get out my Bible, and I'm going to have some quiet time. I'm reading through the book of Exodus, and my oldest son, Micah, instead of being a good, faithful, obedient child, he keeps getting out of bed, doesn't want to take a nap, and he's just coming in and asking me all these dumb questions just to stall. And so, I kid you not, like the fourth time he comes into the room, I'm reading my Bible, like it's in my hand, his little face is standing in front of me, and I just start yelling at him. And I'm like, man, what a jerk. I'm like treating my kid like trash as I'm holding my Bible. I thought, have you ever had one of these moments? We're like, in one moment, like, you are faithful and God-honoring and loving and good, and in the next moment, you are like a piece of crap, just like trashy, like, who am I? And I'm sitting there, like, yelling at my kid over the Bible. He goes back and takes a nap, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, what's wrong with me, God? And it's like, am I a good man or a bad man? I'm a complex man, that's who I am. And my life and my heart are very rarely black and white. They're often really gray, and the more... The Bible reflects my grayness to me. The more clearly I see my need for Jesus. It's like Mark is holding this up because he knows how easy it is for us to experience revival on Sunday and to walk in rebellion on Monday. How easy it is to be touched by God on Sunday and forget about it by the time you hit lunch. And there's this mirror, the story is held up in front of us and it's as if Mark is saying, is your imagination big enough? to find yourself in the dirt with this man. But it's beautiful because it's not just a picture, it's not just a mirror of what the human condition and the human complexity is like. It's a window into the heart of Jesus that helps us see the beauty of Jesus despite the sin and the leprosy that has crawled over the outside of our lives. And I want you to notice this for just a moment. I want you to notice Jesus's, I want you to notice his, his compassion and his kindness, and his love towards this man when this man's life was marked by both complexity and this broken condition. I love it. When, when this man was down and out, Jesus was there. When this man was distanced from God, Jesus was near. When this man was faithless, Jesus was faith-filled. When this man was hopeless, Jesus was the hope. And you see this over and over and over. Jesus knew, he was not surprised that this man would take his grace and then disobey him. Jesus was not surprised that this man with leprosy would squander his grace. And yet Jesus loved him enough anyways to still touch him. Jesus is not surprised by your tendency and my tendency to squander his grace either. And yet he still loves us enough to meet us in the midst of those moments when our hearts don't feel very black and they don't feel very white. They feel somewhere in between. And Jesus stoops down in the midst of it and he puts his hand on us. He says, listen, my grace is bigger and bolder and more beautiful and more wonderful even than your spiritual complexity. But his grace is not just bigger than your complexity. The grace of Jesus is bigger than your condition. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. And this is what Mark is trying to help us see. Is that this man came to Jesus broken, low, hopeless, 
unable to heal himself, and he came to the right place. That the only good man in this story was Jesus. And this man with leprosy came to the right place. I love this moment where this man's condition has been marked for years and years and years and years. And with a single touch, Jesus changes the entire trajectory of this guy's life. And I go, one touch from Jesus does more than a thousand sermons or a thousand hours of quiet time or a thousand service projects, one touch from Jesus can change absolutely everything. And I love this, this moment. You, you see this thing. Now, in Jesus' world, and I won't spend a lot of time here because we'll see this in the weeks that uh, come as we get into the Gospel of Mark. But during Jesus' day, the religious system was divided around two things, clean things and unclean things. And this is really important for us to understand at least a little bit as we wrap up this story. In their world, they believed that if something clean spiritually came in contact with something unclean spiritually, that whatever was clean was now made dirty. So think about this. If you're wearing a white shirt and a kid runs into the room wearing, with muddy hands and they touch your white shirt, what happens to that white shirt? It is now dirty, right? It's now dirty. And this is the way the religious world operated. It's the way much of our religious world operates. It's the way many of you still function. You believe if your life that has been cleaned up by God touches somebody's life that has not been cleaned up by God, that the, the dirty thing will make the clean thing dirty. Now, in one moment, with one touch, Jesus is going to bring the religious system to its knees. He's going to shake it to its core with the power of who God is. Because for the first time in the human story, Jesus, the clean one, touches this man who had been deemed unclean. And Jesus, the clean one, makes the unclean one clean. And it's this powerful reversal where Jesus is saying, listen, my touch, my presence in your life is bigger than all of your spiritual, your social, your physical uncleanliness. My grace is bigger than your guilt. My suffering will conquer your shame. My love will overwhelm your sense of doubt and fear. And there's this moment with one touch, Jesus sends a message that will forever change the course of human history. And Mark is asking you, is your imagination big enough to find yourself in the story? Where do you still need to be touched by Jesus? What are the places of your heart? What are the places of your heart that still aren't reflecting the image of God? What are the places of your life that still aren't walking in grace-filled obedience to the commands of Jesus? What are the places of your life that still keep leading you towards physical and social and spiritual separation from God? Where are the places that Jesus still needs to touch and heal you? What's beautiful is Jesus had the power, but it wasn't unleashed until a man was humble enough and broken enough to bring both his faith and his doubt into the presence of the one that could do something about it. And I think one of my real fears on Sundays is that we'll gather around stories like this and we'll leave with minds that are more informed about the power of God, but we'll leave with hearts that still have not been touched. And you know, this, this whole 30 minutes is a waste if we go, wow, Jesus can clean up our mess. Jesus can heal our sickness. Jesus can heal the, the spiritual reality of our souls. Jesus can change us with a touch. This whole morning is wasted. If we leave here intellectually acknowledging the power of his touch, but we're never humble enough to break all the rules and throw ourselves in his presence, saying, God, only you can do this. 
And so here's what I'm going to invite you to do. We're going to take communion here in just a moment. We're going to worship together. We're going to stand and we're going to sing some songs. And you're going to be so tempted to stand up and to pretend that everything's cool. To go to the table, to take the bread, to drink the cup, to, to pray for a moment, sing songs, and leave. And I, I just want to ask you, like here we are, a room full of lepers, a room full of people whose lives and hearts need to be touched by you. Do you have the courage to, to be humble and to get on your face before Jesus with both your fears, your faith, and your doubt and say, Jesus, only you? And so we're going to take communion. If you're ready to take communion, you can go do that. If you want to pray, get with people and pray. If you want to be prayed over, there'll be some of us up front. And if you want to just come and be prayed over, we would love to pray. If you want to come pray for people, just come up here and let's pray for people. Well, I want to invite you to stand up. I'm going to pray for us. Then we'll take communion. We'll worship. And then anybody that wants to be prayed over will do that. So let's stand together. And we'll ask God to do what only God can do.